Let's pray and ask God for his help. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we do thank and praise you for your justice. Uh, we pray that as we look tonight at uh, your anger directed towards Israel, that we might learn lessons from them, that we might turn in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might turn from sin and live your way. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We live in a world of profound injustice. There's an increasing gap between rich and poor. Wealthy people like us, we enjoy amazing benefits. Housing, food, clean water, even hot water, sanitation, clothing, access to health care, access to education. We have all the modern conveniences, anything we could want. We've got cars, computers, fridges, microwaves, washing machines, dishwashers. We've got mobile phones and iPads. Anything that we want, you just walk 100 metres in any direction to either temple of materialism and you can buy whatever it is that you want. We've even got lots of things that we don't want. You can see a big pile of stuff out in this, these two big boxes out here of stuff that people don't even want or need anymore. We've certainly got stacks of stuff that we don't need. We've got heaps. Meanwhile, billions of people in our world don't have even, even basic things. Millions of people in our world starve to death or die from poor sanitation, or from dirty water, or from preventable diseases. And it's not like we've got it the way we are because we're smarter, or because we're better, or because we're more deserving. Humanly speaking, it's just luck of the draw. You're just lucky to have been born in Australia, or had your parents bring you to Australia. You're just lucky that so many of these things have come to you it's not just lucky it's unjust it's unjust that we have such wealth while so many people have so little and as I look at Amos chapter 5 it makes me wonder should I be worried about this is the wealthy comfortable prosperous life that I'm living is that something displeasing to God is the fact that I have so much while around me people have so little, does that make God angry? It worries me because in Amos chapter 5, we see God's judgment on wealthy Israel. God's judgment on their injustice. A judgment that no amount of religion can protect them from. Well, the first part of Amos chapter 5 it's made up of a special kind of a poem. It's a poem called A Lament. A Lament is like a poem of mourning for the dead. And you can see in verse 1 what we're looking at. Have a look, at, have a look with me. Chapter 5, Amos chapter 5 and verse 1. Amos says, Here's this, Hear this word, a house of Israel, this lament I take up concerning you. Okay, so this is a lament poem. And it's structured in a very special way. It's structured in what's called a chiasm. This is a chiastic structure, and the Bible college students all cheer. This is a chiasm. Uh, the way a chiasm works, it's a bit like ripples in a pond. Okay, so you've got a middle section, and then you have things on either side. Uh, and, and then things, so you've got middle section, something on the other side, and it's the same on either side, and then it's the same on either side again. It's like sort of concentric circles. Um, so this particular poem, it's got three sections surrounding the middle section. And you, you can diagram it like the diagram that I've put in your outline. You can see on your outline, left-hand side there, you've got the middle section, and I've marked that with a D. Can you see the section marked with a D? It's some kind of a, a statement about God. 
And then on either side, you've got the C's. Okay, C before the D, C after the D. And that's where God accuses Israel of injustice. And then either side of the C's, you've got the B's. Okay, is where uh, God calls Israel to, to repent, to seek him. And then either side of that, you've got the A's, the beginning and the end of the poem, which is where God announces, announces judgment. Okay, so the structure is A, B, C, D, and then back again, C, B, A. Can everyone see, this, see how that works? All right. If we've got the structure, we'll look at the poem itself, but because of the structure, we'll start in the middle. Okay, so we're going to start in the middle of this poem. The middle section is verses 8 to 9. And it's a description of God. So it says first that God is the creator, creator of the stars above. Verse 8, he, this is God, who made the Pleiades and Orion. Orion's not just a child in our kids' church. Orion is a star. Okay, so God is the creator of stars. It also says that God is the sustainer. He brings each day, he brings each night. Verse 8 again, who turns blackness into dawn and darkens day into night. God is creator and sustainer. And God is also judge. He showed it in the time of Noah and he can do it again. Amos says he can bring down fortified cities, including Israel's fortified cities. Still in verse 8. Who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land. The Lord is his name. He flashes destruction on the stronghold and brings the fortified city to ruin. There's our middle section. God, creator, sustainer, judge. Uh, now we move to the sections on either side. Okay? And as we look at the sections on either side, there's this contrast. God who is just, Israel who are acting unjustly. Israel who are oppressing the poor. Israel who are exploiting the needy. So let's look at the two sections. First there's a short section, verse 7. Verse 7. You who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. And then on the other side, from verse 9, another accusation of injustice, you hate the one who reproves in court and despise him who tells, despise him who tells the truth. You trample on the poor and force him to give you grain. Therefore, though you've built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you've planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how many are your offences and how great your sins. You oppress the righteous and take bribes, and you deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Therefore, the prudent man keeps quiet in such times, for the times are evil. Okay, we've got God, the creator, sustainer, and judge. On either side, Israel, who are unjust oppressors. And so now moving out to the next section, God calls on Israel to repent. To, to change their ways. He says, I'm not interested in you going to your religious places and being religious. He says, that's all going to be destroyed. He says to Israel, I want you to seek me, to, to seek my mercy. So we'll start in verse 4. Verse 4. This is what the Lord says to the house of Israel. Seek me and live. Do not seek your religious places. Bethel, do not go to Gilgal, do not journey to Beersheba. For Gilgal will surely go into exile and Bethel will be reduced to nothing. Seek the Lord and live. For he'll sweep through the house of Joseph like a fire. It'll devour and Bethel will have no one to quench it. Okay, call to repentance. And now on the other side, the same thing, another call to repentance. Verse 14. Verse 14. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you just as you say he is. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. Okay, seeing how the structure's falling out? Just in passing, that expression there, hate evil, love good. 
I just say I find that I find that really striking. What God wants from us, it's pretty deep. He's not just interested in in how we act or, or, or what we say. It's about what we love, what we hate. I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm doing the right thing, but I'm wishing I was doing the wrong thing. Well, I'm doing the right thing and I'm looking longingly at the people doing the wrong thing thinking, oh, I wish I could be them. I wish I could maybe, you know, live a godless life and repent on my deathbed or something like that. God's not interested in that. And God says, what do you love? Do you love good? Or do you love evil? It's quite piercing, isn't it? Oh, I don't always pass the test. Do you? Okay, the poem. God's creator, sustainer and judge. Israel love evil, not good. They've acted unjustly. And so God calls them to change their ways. But it seems Israel aren't going to do it. And so the poem begins and it ends with a message of judgment. Israel are going to be defeated and destroyed. And there's this very powerful expression that God's not going to pass over them anymore like he did in Egypt. God's going to pass right through the middle of them in judgment. Verse 2. Verse 2. Fallen is virgin Israel, never to rise again. Deserted in her own land with no one to lift her up. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. The city that marches out a thousand strong for Israel will have only a hundred left. The town that marches out a hundred strong will have only ten left. And now jumping to the end to verse 16. So we've had judgment at the beginning, now judgment at the end, verse 16. Therefore this is what the Lord says, the Lord God Almighty, therefore this is what the Lord, the Lord God Almighty says, there will be wailing in all the streets and cries of anguish in every public square. The farmers will be summoned to weep and the mourners to wail. There will be wailing in all the vineyards. For I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. Okay, so there's the lament. Let's run through it one more time, starting in the middle, working out. God's creator, sustainer and judge. Israel are unjust. So God calls them to repent and he announces his judgment. The picture I get of Israel here, they're very religious. I mean, they're, they're like Presbyterians. Right? They, they go to church every week. They're very strict about you know, having a tie in church or not swinging on a swing on the Sabbath or something like that. But, but it doesn't impact on their business dealings for the rest of the week. The rest of the week, it's this private matter. It's like Sunday they're here in church, all religious, but Monday to Saturday they're just like everyone else, indistinguishable. Everyone at work, they'd be most surprised if they found out that this person was a churchgoer. God's not impressed. God's not impressed. What they do on a Sunday is not going to help them. Not if it doesn't change the rest of the week. Well, there's the lament. Uh, the next section, next section is... a. Uh, a pronouncement of woe. Um, probably most of you are too young to remember the Fonz, but it's not the Fonzie's kind of a woe. It's a woe of, um, of kind of, again, mourning, a, woe, a cry like alas or something like that. All right. Um, so Amos uh, pronounces this woe upon Israel's, again, their injustice and their religion. And first off, he talks about a concept called the Day of the Lord. This is actually probably the first time in the Bible, the earliest mention in the Bible of this concept of the Day of the Lord. It seems to be something Israel are looking forward to, 
They are expecting God to come on this special day and it seems they were expecting God to come and judge their enemies. And so they're looking forward to it. God to come on this day of the Lord and judge their enemies. But of course, if you've read the first two chapters of Amos, suddenly that's not any great comfort anymore, is it? Because what's Amos told them? You're just as bad as your enemies. Just as sinful as your enemies. You, you, you deserve judgment just as, not, just as much, if not more, than your enemies. And so the day of the Lord, the day God comes to judge, that's not something for Israel to look forward to at all. It might be that, they, that their enemies get judged. It's like they escape from a lion as their enemies get judged, but then they run into God and that's like running into a bear. It's like you know, they escape from their enemies. It's like, oh, phew, we're safe at home. And then they run into God and it's like a poisonous snake. Verse 18. 18. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It'll be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear. As though he entered his house and, and rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light? Pitch dark without a ray of brightness. This day of the Lord, it is not good news for Israel. And again, their religion is no protection. In fact, God says their hypocritical religious practices, they just make him angrier. And this is one of the most stunning statements I reckon in the whole Bible. As God looks at Israel's religion and he, 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 he just spits on it with anger. He says, you disgust me with your religious practices. He says, I'm not interested in your external religion. I want justice Monday to, Saturday, Monday to Saturday. I don't want your games on Sunday. I want you to live righteously. Have a look. This is pretty strong stuff. Verse 21. This is God speaking about Israel's religion. Have a look. Verse 21. I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. It's pretty strong stuff, isn't it? You can imagine how shocking this would be for Israel. The next couple of verses, they're a bit difficult to translate. Um, as the NIV interprets them, and even with the NIV's interpretations, it's a bit hard to know exactly what it's saying. But uh, uh, I think what's happening is God is referring back to the time Israel were in the desert, before they came into the promised land. And he's saying, look, while you're in the desert... You didn't offer me any sacrifices. So it's a question, but I think the answer is no. You didn't offer me any sacrifices, but I brought you into the promised land anyway. And I think what God is saying in this verse is, it's not about your sacrifices. It's about whether you're my people. I don't want your religion, I want your repentance. Verse 25, did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the desert, O house of Israel? Assumedly, the answer, no. But yet God brought them into the land. And now that they're in the promised land, it seems Israel are not just worshipping God, they're worshipping idols as well. Now perhaps this is referring to um, uh, the golden calves. Now I spoke about this last week, um, but uh, Rebecca will tell you all about this because she's been to Dan. Uh, what happened is when um, 
when she was in Israel, she saw all this. Um, uh, the, the two kingdoms split, do you remember, under Solomon's son Rehoboam? So you had the southern tribes of, became Judah, the northern tribes became Israel, and the northern country of Israel, they didn't want to go all the way to Jerusalem anymore for their religion, and so they set up golden calves at the bottom, which is Bethel, and at the top, which is Dan. I think that's right, Rebecca, isn't it? The bottom's Bethel, the top's Dan. Dan. Um, they set up golden calves there, and that's where they used to do their religion instead of going to the temple. Now, maybe that's what uh, God's referring to here with their idolatry, Maybe it's some other idolatry. Either way, God says, it's no protection against my anger. You're going into exile. Verse 26. You have lifted up the shrine of your king, the pedestal of your idols, the star of your God, which you made for yourselves. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is God Almighty. Okay, there's Amos 5. Lament poem. And then a statement of woe. Again, both saying the same thing. God is holy. God is just. But wealthy Israel, they're being unjust. They're exploiting, oppressing the poor. God demands that they stop, that they change their ways, that they seek him. He's not interested in them being more religious. He wants them to seek him, change their ways. But it seems it's all to no avail. Israel are not going to change. And so God's judgment is coming All right, as we think about how to apply this passage to ourselves, I think it's very important that we note that God hasn't changed on this. It's not like the God of the Old Testament was interested in justice, but now in the New Testament, God doesn't care about justice anymore. Jesus said very similar stuff to what Amos says in chapter 5. In fact, the people, that, the people he ripped into the most were not the out-and-out sinners. The people he ripped into the most were the religious people. The, the, the religious people who were, who were wealthy and who wouldn't act with justice. The, the religious people who, who were serious about their religion but weren't serious about living a righteous life. On your outline there I've put some stuff that Jesus said. And, and, and here he's talking to the best, the most orthodox, the most religious people of his day, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. Have a look at what he says to them. Can you see on the right-hand side of your outline there? It's from Matthew 23. Woe to you! teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill and cum, and so careful about your religious practices, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter, do your religion fine, but without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. <coughs> Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, you look all religious, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Jesus makes himself pretty clear, doesn't he? It's a powerful image, I reckon, that you, you've, you've strained this microscopic insect out of your soup as you've you know, worked hard on your superlapsarianism and your, your I don't know, whatever, your complementarianism or your this or that ism. You know, you're so careful about your religion. And then you're not a godly Christian. Monday to Saturday, 
no one even knows you are a Christian. You're just the same as everybody else. It's like you've swallowed this gnat, you've strained out this gnat and you've swallowed a camel. Well, as I said at the start, we are wealthy people. In terms of world history and in terms of the world today, we are some of the wealthiest people who have ever existed. And we live in a world full of poverty. We have everything that we want and much, much more while millions of people starve. You know, I hope God isn't thinking the same thing about us that he was thinking about Israel in Amos chapter 5. I hope we're not straining out gnats with our religion while we're swallowing the camel of being greedy, unjust exploiters. Now, yes, I know that it's all different now. I know it's the New Testament. I know it's Jesus who saves us from God's anger. I know it's Jesus who puts us right with God. I know uh, Jesus' death and resurrection is, is a sacrifice that God does accept on our behalf. I know that it's Jesus' death and resurrection that means we're forgiven. Jesus' death and resurrection that means we're accepted by God. Jesus' death and resurrection that means we're looking forward to heaven. I know on the last day when we stand before God, we're not going to be talking about all the righteous things we've done and how just we were. We're going to be talking about Jesus and saying, thank you very much. I know it's all about Jesus. But I hope we're not kidding ourselves. I hope we're not like those whitewashed tombs that Jesus talks about. I hope our religious practices are not a cover for a selfish, unjust life. I have to admit I'm not quite sure about how, to, how far to go with applying this. In one sense, it's pretty easy to let ourselves off the hook here. Um, if we think about the ways that we personally act with justice or injustice. I mean, I look at Amos here and I go, well, I've never forced a poor person to give me grain. Hasn't happened. I don't own any stone mansions. Don't own any vineyards. I've never taken a bribe. Never deprived a poor person of justice in a court. Um, I basically live an honest life. I, I work for my money. I pay for my stuff. I, I hope you're the same as me. I mean, most of us, we spend our lives in ways that contribute to society. We're, we're studying or we're working in, in good jobs that are helpful to people in our personal dealings. We're not every day exploiting people or oppressing people. So, I mean, if you are, um, you've you got to stop. All right? You need to repent. Um, let me just think through a few things in the New Testament. If you are mistreating your wife, the Bible says God's not, God's not going to listen to your prayers. You've got you to fix that. Um, if you're ripping off your employees, not giving them their proper um, money or super or whatever it is, you've you got to stop. If you don't pay your cleaners or, or, or make your lawnmower man wait for months before you pay him or someone does, does lots of hard work and you're not happy with some tiny thing and you refuse to pay, you've you got to stop all of that. That's, that's exploitation. God is your master in heaven. You want him to treat you well, you've got to treat the people who serve you properly. Make sure you're not exploiting people who serve you. Certainly, if your Christian faith makes no difference to the way you work, to the way you are during the week, that's, that's really a big worry. 
If we lie and steal and exploit in our workplaces, then showing up here on Sunday is not going to fix it with God. If you are indistinguishable from the rest of the world Monday to Saturday, showing up here is not going to suddenly make God go, oh, well, that's all fine then. God is going to say to you, seek me and live. Don't head up to Chatswood Presbyterian and play some religious games. Repent. Change your ways. Live as a Christian, fair income from Monday to Saturday. But I suspect that's not most of us. Most of us, we're not out-and-out hypocrites on this. I mean, I'm sure that most of us, our Christian faith does make a difference to the rest of the week. I'm sure it's no surprise to the people that we work with or study with that we are Christians. They know we're the God-bothering, do-gooder Christian types. I'm sure that's the case for the vast majority of us here. It makes a big difference to how we work, how we trade. It does make us act with greater justice. But still, I don't think we're off the hook. I don't think we're off the hook. The more I've reflected on this during the week, uh, in Bible study and on my own, the more it's opened up like a whole can of worms, the more complicated it's got. Let me just give you a a few examples. These are examples that people brought up in Bible study, Monday and Wednesday when I was in Bible study, examples where I could be guilty of oppression and exploitation. Uh, Some people in Bible study, they talked about our computers, our electronics, our iPhones and B phones and Q phones and all the other telephones that we've got. Um, apparently, a whole heap of them, a whole heap of the components of these things are made in what is basically a slave labor factory in, uh, in China. Um, Anthony sent me a very interesting website about uh, all sorts of terrible practices that are happening in the factory that makes our electronics and computers. Similarly with many of our clothes and shoes, someone else showed me a website Uh, where some of our clothing and shoe manufacturers have moved out of China because China is now insisting on human rights for their employees. And so now they've shifted to places like Bangladesh and Indonesia where there are no human rights, so they can still make it as cheap as possible for us to have nice shoes. Uh, Some people talked about how our chocolate and coffee come from cocoa, which is made under profoundly oppressive conditions. Some people talked about how apparently Coles and Woolworths are squeezing farmers to make our milk and our bread cheap. Some people talked about our mistreatment of asylum seekers. Some people talked about injustice in access to medical care or injustice in access to legal representation. Reality is if we look hard enough, there are a whole stack of injustices in our society, injustices that we personally profit from. Injustices that we personally benefit from, that that give us the wealthy, prosperous, comfortable lives that we have. And and if you're like me, what you do, you just don't ask any questions. You you stick your head in the sand, stuff it with chocolate and coffee, dress it in cheap clothes and, and don't talk to me about where it all came from. To be honest, I'm not sure what to do with this. I mean, I could spend my whole life researching everything so that I know exactly where each part, each component of everything that I eat or use or wear, chase down everything where it goes and look it up on the internet as if that's going to tell me the truth, find out what, what conditions it was produced in. But in this modern world, it's very complicated, isn't it? Very complicated. I'm not sure how much difference it would make. I'm not sure. Reality is it's just not going to happen. Too hard basket. And yet, Amos chapter 5 worries me. What if, 
I'm one of those exploiters who thinks that showing up to church is going to fix it. What if I'm praying and praising God on Sundays and God is thinking, Jeff, you've swallowed a camel. Jeff, you're just making me angry. Jeff, I hate what you're doing. Get rid of that nice guitar. Take it away from me. Away with your hypocritical worship. Give me justice. Again, I know Jesus saves me. I know no amount of doing justice can save me. I'm just worried that I'm being a hypocrite. And so I suspect I do need to be more careful. This, this really runs against the grain for me. But maybe I shouldn't just buy the cheapest things. Maybe I should take a bit more interest in where stuff comes from, where it was made, how it was made. And if some injustice is brought to my attention, I probably shouldn't ignore it. I should act on it. I mean, if it's proved to me that I'll do justice by buying the more expensive milk, I ought to do it. Even if I have to pay more. If it's proved to me that those cheap clothes that I would love to get from you know, some ridiculously low price are made in a sweatshop in China, maybe I shouldn't buy them. Maybe there are a number of things that I shouldn't buy. Maybe I, maybe I should be going for the fair trade stuff. I should certainly be, be generous with my money. Someone as incredibly wealthy as I am should be generous in giving help to the poor. I hope that you are generous in giving to charity. There's two opportunities through our church to give to poor people each year. At Easter, we support Pres Aid, which gives money to poor people. At Christmas, we support Tear Fund. Generally speaking, the whole church gives about $1,000 to each of those. So I think most people are chucking in kind of $20. Maybe if you're not giving to poor people, take that much more seriously. Give much more seriously towards those two things. But hopefully you're also giving to, I don't know, you've got support in orphans or World Vision kids. or You're giving to poor people somehow. You need to be generous. I probably ought to be writing more letters to my local member. Or when someone shoots me that... Um, email about some terrible injustice I shouldn't just hit delete like I should but send it off to my local member raising issues of injustice I'm I'm starting to sound like some left wing hippie aren't I maybe that's the issue maybe our conservative north shore right wing politics in some cases is the politics of unjust exploiters hard to know where to stop isn't it the more you look at it the more there is. And of course, there's nowhere we can stop and now feel justified. And like, now I've done enough to be satisfying to God. Again, it's only Jesus who can satisfy God for us. But do you see the point? Do you see the application of Amos chapter 5? God is not so much interested in our gnat-straining religious games. He's not so much interested in, in whether we do everything the right way on Sunday. What he wants is our lives to be changed by the love of the Lord Jesus Christ so we become people of justice, people of generosity, people of integrity, people of righteousness. He wants us to to love what is good, to hate what is evil. Plenty to think about there, isn't there? Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do praise you because you are a God of justice. We praise you that you've demonstrated that perfectly in the Lord Jesus Christ who bore the entire just judgment for our sin in his body on the cross. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that we look forward to a day when you will establish perfect justice and righteousness forever. Father, we thank you so much that we are the beneficiaries 
of your love through Jesus. We pray that you would please forgive us, cleanse us, and change us by the power of your Holy Spirit into people who are different for knowing Jesus, people who are serious about justice, righteousness, integrity. Father, please change us by the power of your Spirit. We pray in the name of your Son. Amen.